Welcome to People from the Program, a podcast highlighting alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. Welcome everyone to People from the Program, the podcast that highlights the career journeys of alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. I'm your host, Bryce Butler, founder and chairman of the NYU Music Business Alumni Network, and a proud alum myself of the NYU Music Business Program. On today's show, my guest is Matt Rose, marketing manager at Merlin, the digital licensing partner for the world's leading independent record labels, distributors, and recording rights holders. Matt works on Merlin's company-wide marketing strategy and initiatives. A working composer himself, Matt is also a fierce advocate for music creator rights and serves as a board member at Music Answers, through which he's spoken on panels for the Association for Popular Music Education Conference and U.S. State Department Arts Envoy. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bryce. It's really great to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great to have you on. Um, Matt, let's jump right into it. Let's start with the first question. Tell me about your journey to the NYU Music Business Program. Where'd you start and how'd you get there? Yeah, sure. So I would say I started basically just being around a family that was in music uh, to some extent and very supportive of music. Uh, You know, my, on my dad's side, my dad was really involved in like, not himself as a musician, but through his family, really close with a lot of people in the jazz scene and, uh, went on tour with like the Buddy Rich big band as just like a kid. Um, So he like Mm. did that as like a cool, fun thing growing up. And my mom, just like her family was really into music. Um, Just, you know, as people who listen to it, my grandfather was a drummer and just, and plays piano a little bit. And I was really into that. Uh, And my uncle, my mom's brother is an entertainment attorney. Um, And so, that's always been a big part of my family. My, my cousin on my dad's side, uh, was an artist manager for a really long time. Um, so the music business was something that, you know, I wasn't necessarily directly involved in growing up, but I had family members involved in it and, and I knew it was a thing that existed. Um, I didn't really think about going into it at all. Uh, growing up when I'm like, when I was really young, I wanted to be just a lawyer. Like my grandfather's a lawyer, my uncle's a lawyer. And I was like, oh, I want to be a lawyer. Okay. Uh, that sounds cool. Um, <laughs> and I was really into it. I mean, I just I just like that that portion of, of the world and thinking about things in, in that type of way, um, like law and analytically and stuff like that. And, and really, you know, that type of thinking, um, which will come back later, I'm sure, as we talk about things and, and things will be a lot clearer as how I ended up where I ended up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was a musician growing up. Um, I, I played a lot of different things and participated in a lot of different music groups. I, I started as a guitarist, uh, when I was five and, uh, did that all through, throughout high school. I still do it. Um, I was in orchestras. I played a lot of woodwind instruments. Um, mm. I, I played in, in the musicals in high school. I did jazz band. I did all of this stuff. So I was really into music. Um, I just didn't want to pursue it in college as a musician. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was something about the practicing and like the, that whole lifestyle. And, <laughs> right. and I was, I, I think I was like, I was doing it at a pretty high level in high school. And I think just being around the types of people I was around the other musicians, I was like, there's just some disconnect between them and me um, that like, they're so into, you know, sitting in a room for five hours and just practicing and like, you know, 
that level of commitment to, to playing that wasn't for me. Um, it it was, it was very repetitive to me and and I didn't want to do that. And eventually I found my way to, to writing and that became a whole different outlet for me, uh, musically that I, you know, I, I did and, and do professionally and, uh, ended up being okay. I didn't, I didn't discover it yet really, um, in high school. So my parents actually told me about the fact, you know, that I could go to college for, for music business, oh, which wow. I didn't really know that I, it wasn't something I found, which I feel like is very different than a lot of people that I went to school with. My, my parents, different. my parents found it. Um, mm. And my cousin went to Berkeley for music business. So that might've been how, I don't know if that was part of it. Um, but they told me about it and immediately I was, I was sold on the idea of going to school for music business and I don't know if I always wanted to go to NYU. As far as I remember, I always wanted to go to NYU. Like that's that was my first choice place. I I'm from Philadelphia originally, so I spent a lot of time in New York just oh, in okay. general. So um, I remember actually like my earliest memory of being in New York when I was like five or six years old was being in Washington Square Park. So I didn't know it at the time that that's where I would end up, but I like very specifically remember that. It's like one of the earliest memories I have, which is actually kind of surreal, but. Um, so I, I visited a lot of different music business programs. I, I visited, um, Miami cause I have a lot of family down there. I visited Syracuse. I visited, um, Drexel cause that was in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, ultimately NYU, like, and I knew this would happen just reading about it and, and knowing about it. Um, I knew that it would be the one that I wanted to go to. It was actually specifically chosen by my parents that I would visit NYU last because they Ooh. wanted me to have the experience of going to every other college visit before I went to NYU. Um, so NYU is the last college I visited on my college tour. Um, and I, I immediately loved it. I mean, it was, it was absolutely amazing. I met with uh, Professor Howard Spink on my uh, visit and uh, it was just a really great uh, fit for me. I, I mean, what I was looking for is, you know, I, I wanted to do something that combined actual business. Uh, a lot of the music business programs they looked at were like very like specific or, or the music business program was very, um, it was very centered in music. And I, I always want to have this not necessarily fallback, but my dad went to business school and he was always very keen on the idea of me, you know, if it doesn't work out in music, being able to do other things. So right, it was really, cool. it was really great to me that like the Stern courses were a thing that I would have access to. Um, but also compared to a lot of the other music business programs, there was a really substantial music curriculum. And I liked the idea that I would be in music school with people who were studying to be musicians and getting that education um, alongside them. But I wouldn't have to maybe do some of the other things that they had to do to get a degree in like performance or something like that. Um, and then the other mm. big selling point for me was just, I, I'm a really big musical theater person. Um, that was something I did a lot in high school and I, I and eventually found my way back to it professionally as a writer. Um, but at the mm. time I didn't know that I could be a writer. I only write music and I don't do lyrics and I don't uh, do all the other components of it. So, uh, Eventually, I found my way to that um, through a series of other events, which is a whole other podcast. Um, but I liked, but I liked the idea that uh, NYU is a very strong musical theater school and a very strong film school, um, and the idea that that could be a component of my right. journey 
and my experience um, was really a big selling point for me. Uh, most of my friends outside of music business are in either or were in either the musical theater or film programs at NYU. Um, so I really just got the perfect combination of everything that I was looking for. That's kind of how I ended up there. I, I applied early decision, got in, right. um, and that was kind of that. It was, it was, you know, that was it for me. Wow. I mean, there are some interesting nuggets of that to unpack. One, first and foremost, let me say it's always good to talk to a fellow Pennsylvanian. Oh, I'm, where, from, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh on the other side of the state. That's where a lot of my family lives right now. So oh, I'm there. I'm there a lot. Matt, I knew there was something I liked about you. <laughs> this is the first time talking to you. I knew there was something I liked about you. <laughs> okay, so does that extend to the football team? Are you are you are you Eagles or are you Steelers? No, I'm Eagles. Right now. Oh, I'm okay. Not, I'm not Steelers. I don't have a problem with the Steelers. That's a, you know. And I don't have a problem with the Eagles. I think I think this is important for the listeners to know from the football side, the Eagles and the Steelers don't have a lot of problems with each other. They used they to be play. the same team. At they used to be the same team, the Steagles. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they just don't play enough for for people to have that rivalry. Now, the Flyers and the Penguins, on the other hand, yeah, that's a different, different story. <laughs> also, too, in high school, I was also in the concert band and the jazz band. Um, saxophone, alto, tenor, and Very baritone nice. throughout my middle school and junior high and high school years. Uh, settled on the Barry sax and finished playing that. They they did want me to play in the marching band, but I was a football player and there was no uh, way yeah. I was going to march on the week in, in the halftime with my uniform on. No, absolutely not. not yeah. <laughs> Some people did. Shout out to them. I don't want to disrespect them. It just was not for me. Yeah, marching band wasn't really a thing in my high school, but uh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done it anyway. I didn't play any marching band instruments, luckily, so I would not have been <laughs> yeah. subjected to that. Besides <laughs> the fact that we were not a we were we were a very big basketball school and not a big football school at all, and I don't think really we, okay. no nobody went to the games like at all. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, people went to it. people went to our basketball games. We had a good basketball team, but where we're at, we were a football school first and foremost, because Western Pennsylvania is obviously a big yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So, and then the other piece of this that's super interesting to me for you is you are probably the first person I have interviewed. You'll be my 20th interview. You are the first person whose parents steered them towards, you can have a career in music business. <laughs> Everyone yeah. else has a different story about how they came to the program and had to convince consistently convince their parents that I want to pursue this and their yeah. parents being a little, uh, well, music, I don't know. So it was so interesting that you, your family has that background. So they knew the viability of the career and what you could do. Yeah. I mean, I think it can go both ways when you have family members in the music industry. Like I've definitely worked with particularly artists who, you know, have kids and they've, they've said, you know, I would never have my kids go into the music industry, but I think that's a very like specific artist trajectory and it's a whole different set of circumstances. I, I just think it probably contributed to it that like the two people that they knew very well that were in the music industry were my uncle who was a successful entertainment attorney. Um, he's, he's one of the main ones in Philadelphia and represents a lot of like Philadelphia based uh, music clients. So um, he was doing, he's doing pretty well and that probably helped. Um, and my cousin was, managing um a band that was doing very well right out of college like they 
they were the classic didn't graduate from Berkeley story. Um, <laughs> so that probably helped too. Wow. Um, he, he's not doing that anymore, but yeah. he was for, for a really long time. And, and that probably helped too, in the sense that they could see the viability of that um, because it wasn't from the creative side necessarily. So, so Matt, you may not know this, but I, I, I want to ask if you do, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. Sure. Was your uncle representing anyone in the Philadelphia soul kind of genre that era? He wasn't doing it at the time, but he, he, and I, I won't get into who, but he, he does work with some of those, uh, folks. And when you, cause when you say successful, there are two people that come to mind. We won't say their names. We won't I, say their names. <laughs> oh, that's big time. That's yeah. big time. I think if the listener does their history, they know if, if, if your uncle was working with working with that group and those artists, he, he definitely was having success. <laughs> Not back then, but he, he has now he has, he, he does work with them now. So it's, oh, uh, excellent. it's been, excellent. It's, it's been cool. I haven't been involved in it at all, but, um, he, he, he really has a lot of fun with it. Oh, excellent, man. Just, just glad to hear that. And I can only imagine what your interview was like to get into the program for that bachelor's and just having that background and the people and your family, you know, that I'm sure that along with the music stuff you were doing, just enhanced your application to help you go ahead and get in. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we would talk a lot about things going on in the industry. I think it skewed a lot more creative back then. And now the types of conversations we have are like way more in the weeds about just like the, the business and like right. the particular sector of the business that I'm in and that I, I, you know, on all facets I'm kind of surrounded by is like very different than what I thought I was going to be doing. So it's kind of interesting to see how those conversations have changed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so you get into, so you get into the program, you've got, I guess it's fair to say, 100% backing from your family and your parents. So yeah. you're, you're springboarding, you're on your way. Oh, real real quick, did you visit the Robert Morris University music business program in Pittsburgh? I did not. Oh, okay. Just no. curious. And you see you have family that I was like, oh, I wonder if you visited Robert Morris too. They've no, had I, a program for a while. No, I only, the only school, and I didn't visit, the only school I was looking at in Pittsburgh was Carnegie Mellon. And that was back when my, this is a whole other thing, but like, I was really in high school at the end of high school, really interested in physics. And I, I did a lot of like the AP physics stuff. Um, mm. And so there was a very small blip in time where um, I was really interested in music tech, not from like a, a building or like, you know, a uh, technical side, but from a, uh, this will also come back later, um, but from a business side and they have a program at Carnegie Mellon um, centered around the business of music technology and like that type of thing. I don't know if they still do, but they did at the time. And, and that was a point where I was thinking about doing that. I ultimately didn't. Um, but that was something that I was considering as well. So that was the only Pittsburgh connection there. You know what? Fair enough. And I think I may have gotten my programs mixed up. Robert Morris, I was a sport management major in undergrad and they also had sport management. I didn't go to Robert Morris. I went to university of Dayton. Um, oh, it, was sure. it was Clarion University, I believe, that had a music. Oh, okay. Program. Yeah, that's that's another one in Pittsburgh. So, okay, no, but that's great. I've always, I haven't met anyone that went to the University of Miami music business program, but it definitely looks interesting when I've looked it up online. Yeah, I have a, I have a few friends that I've worked with that have done it. Um, it's actually kind of similar to NYU's in a lot of ways, but uh, they separate out, I think, 
the people who do like a more music focus than the people who do more business focus. I think it's like Syracuse like that. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, I, I know a few people have done that. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So, so that you've gotten into, you've gotten into the program. You're going through the program, obviously a little different from the master's program that I went to. You have your four year degree, so you're going to get a variety of classes. So what was your favorite class? from the program and it, it, it doesn't have to be a music business class if you had something else that was um that was your favorite but what was your favorite class and why was it your favorite class yeah well there's one that sticks out to me and then i'll, I'll throw a, a second one out that maybe wasn't my favorite class um but was really meaningful in you know at least in the short term the trajectory of what i ended up doing um so my favorite class was was i think it was called fully landmark cases and music copyright we just called oh, it music copy we just called it music copyright so i i think that was the official name of it um and that oh, was okay. with uh professor strickler who i don't know if this class is still happening i don't know if he's still doing it but at the time and i and i think he's still on the board but at the time uh professor strickler was one of the copyright royalty board judges he was the the economics judge out of the three because each one specializes in different things. He was the economics yeah. uh, specialty judge. Um, that was I, I did that. I think I don't think it was the last. No, it definitely wasn't the last semester of college, but it was the second to last semester. So it was right before I basically didn't have any classes. So it was because I didn't have any classes last semester. So it was my last like real semester of college. Um, and it was a really cool class. It combined like economics. So like the economic principles governing the music industry, particularly with a focus on like recorded and publishing, um, like intellectual property, like music and recording copyrights. And then also just like the history of how our copyright system came to be, how like some of our licensing apparatuses work, uh, particularly with an emphasis on like PROs and that type of thing. Um, and then just, landmark cases in copyright so you have you know it's topical in the sense that we just did a, a, there was just a recent crb phono records case okay. um and so we were going through all of the historical phono records and web cases for different types of uh music I, I i'll call it you know copyright but licensing effectively um and then we also talked a lot about like economics of different streaming models um, not streaming models in the way that we think of them now, uh, like a few years later, um, but streaming models in the sense of like, you know, like this service has a monopoly and this is because they have a monopoly, this is what they're charging or like, what should the value of streaming a song be? It shouldn't be zero, but it shouldn't be $5 because it's a different right. type of thing or like, you know, it's a, it's not a physical good. Um, for streaming. And so a lot of it was on law, a lot of it was on the philosophy. And, and, you know, looking forward, it really was the foundation for everything that I do right now, whether that's at Merlin, or whether that's what I do with music answers, or whether that's what I do as a writer, or just that I do out in the world. Um, like, for example, it's the first place I, I learned about royalty models, which isn't something that mm. I, I it isn't something that I do or negotiate or am involved with in any way in my role. Um, but it's something that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about. I think about, you know, if we, if we put out a new deal at work, um, if we, if we close a deal with a service, 
what that model looks like if that's a part of the messaging that we're putting out. I spend wow. a lot of time thinking about that. Um, so that's really cool to me. It's also not the first place I learned about Merlin, but it's the second place I learned about Merlin. The first place mm. I learned about Merlin was on the first day of uh, Business Structures of the Music Industry with Professor Miller, where we were talking mm. about the structure of the music industry. And I very vividly remember it being like, here's the major labels and here's Merlin and they do the independent thing. And then we never talked about Merlin again. Um, and, <laughs> and then Merlin came back in the last music business class I took besides the capstone um, uh, course and, and all the like thesis type stuff. Um, we, we talked about Merlin because Merlin used to do a lot um, with these types of CRB rulings. And if you go back to some of the earlier litigation cases around like 2008, Merlin was involved in them. Um, and right. that's where I learned about Merlin. Um, and so it was kind of cool looking back that that's, you know, a place that I work and I'm involved in, in that mission, even though we're not doing the mission remains the same, but the, the way that we do it is different. Um, and I, it was just a great class. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what it looks like now, given there's mm -hmm. a lot of changes with what the CRB is doing. And, and there's right. a lot of changes on, on royalty mo Ooh, excuse me, and a lot of uh, emerging, uh, emerging royalty models and the way that um, people are monetizing and consuming music. And a lot of this is changing. Um, but I love that. This The second class I took, which really... Um, was cool to me on the completely different side. And, and I really do toe these two lines, even though they all kind of copyright us at the, at the center of what I do. But, okay. uh, you know, as a creator, I took another class called um, Production and A&R with Phil Gadsden. Um, and Phil's, Phil's been really, since then, a very good mentor to me. Um, it was a class where we did a lot with analyzing the production and, you know, the process of like what makes a good song and what makes a good artist. Um, and it, that was a really amazing course that I took. Uh, I got to take it with a lot of my friends, which was really cool. And I eventually uh, ended up going to get my master's at NYU as well in songwriting um, oh, in wow. Phil's program. So it was kind mm. of the start of that relationship and, and Phil's uh, one of the people that I work with at Music Answers. So that was a really cool, um, that was the beginning of a, of a different path for me that kind of is, runs parallel to, uh, <laughs> to what I do um, elsewhere. So kind of both of those classes in a lot of ways happened at similar times and really kind of set me on the path that I'm in now. And even though they, they cross over a lot, that they kind of run parallel. So I kind of had two, two classes at my time in, the music business program, both music business classes um, mm. that really set me on the path that I'm on right now. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like this is really the foundational framework of your career just right there in these in these two classes that you got to take in the program. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's really great. Um, okay, so going through the program, you got your favorite classes, you you're making your connections. If you had to pick one main takeaway you got from the program, what would you say it would be? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that Larry says on the first day of your of your business structures of the music industry class, it might even be before then, it might be like the day you get there, is like the job that you probably will have or the career that you have won't exist <laughs> right now. And it might not exist when you graduate, but uh, 
it will exist and that will be your job. That's a terrible way of phrasing it. But basically <laughs> summing up that the, the industry is constantly changing and the thing that you'll end up doing doesn't exist. Um, obviously, marketing managers existed when I was in college. Um, but, you know, the types of business that I'm working in, Merlin existed, sure. But the rights business is changing incredibly quickly. Merlin is growing. Um, the types of deals that we're doing are growing. Streaming models are changing. Um, you know, artists and, you know, companies are in becoming increasingly independent um, and the landscape is changing a lot. And so we've grown a lot, even just in the past year. Um, there's a lot of different types of monetization. We didn't talk about like metaverse, AR, VR, Web3, like blockchain, um, even things like fitness or gaming weren't sectors mm -hmm. of music besides like sync licensing that we talked about it all. Um, fast forward to now, and these are things that we read, we, we grapple with on a daily basis um, in the business. Mm -hmm. I'm sure every company is grappling with it on some level. And these are things that, that um, we think about, we, you know, we have deals with and, and work with companies like uh, Peloton or like Supernatural, which is like fitness, but also kind of like a, a AR, uh, VR experience with like Oculus and like licensing music for that. So uh, that wasn't a thing when I was in college. So that was the big takeaway for me. And I still think about that every, every single day in a lot of ways. It's like, I didn't, I wasn't taught how to do this or how to be in this type of business, but foundationally I was, and you have the, right. you have the skill set to do it. I mean, my job didn't exist two years ago. It, wow. Marketing managers existed, but Merlin did not have a marketing operation two years ago. Uh, and the reason that we do have that now was because of the different ways that, uh, the the global rights business the recording rights business is is growing the independent sector is growing right that the scope of operation is growing um and just you know the fact that there are businesses i'll throw out an example the fact that there are independent record labels in countries like vietnam or mm -hmm. um like like peru or you know emerging markets like that that you know, could benefit and are ready to be a part of the global business. You know, uh, 10 years ago, like an independent label in Vietnam would work in Vietnam. They wouldn't have a global audience. They distribute music mostly physically to local record stores. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so the business has changed a lot. I mean, I think back to, to I did a, a class, I'm sure everybody's done it, called Globalization of the Music Industry. Like, that's a lot of my, <laughs> my job. <laughs> is right. uh, mm -hmm. looking back is is that type of stuff so um it's really cool i i think everybody if, if there's one thing that they that i've taken away that they can take away it's like like the industry is growing and it changes all the time but really what you learn at myu does carry over to you know 10 years down the line right um the types of stuff you'll be doing yeah, I mean, that's great stuff and really just speaks to the how relevant 
the program is and what you are learning. And, you know, shout out to, to Larry Miller and all of the professors and the people that have coordinated the program in this way to really set you up to pursue your career and your passion. Um, yeah, that's, that's great to do. Um, talk a little bit about, before we get into kind of the, the more traditional job stuff, talk a little bit about some of the internships you did and why you chose those internships. So I guess your first one was with Live Nation. Yeah. So I, my Live Nation internship was interesting in the sense that I kind of had a couple unique requirements for it. Um, one, I needed an internship that I could do in Philadelphia over the summer because my, between my freshman and sophomore year, I wasn't going to live in New York. Um, I was still doing on-campus housing. And so I went home for the summer. It's the only summer I spent like during college at home. Um, right. and so I needed something in Philadelphia for, for everybody listening, Philadelphia does not have the most, there, there are some music companies that are based in Philadelphia, um, and have big offices there. Live nation is one of them. Um, but there aren't a lot of music companies in Philadelphia other than like very local labels, um, and venues because it's so close to New York. So like there aren't offices for like major labels for the most part. Um, or major music companies in Philadelphia. Because if somebody lived in like, I don't know, if somebody was in Philadelphia, they'd move 40 minutes north and then they would just commute to New York. So they don't have that. So I was a little limited in what I could do. Live Nation was one of them. They actually do have a pretty big operation in Philadelphia because of um, Maverick Management. Um, and they're based there, I believe. And so they were in the mm -hmm. same office. Um, and so Live Nation had a big operation. And there were a lot of venues there. So I did my internship at Live Nation in the premium seating department. I had no interest in live music going into this, actually. <laughs> I'm really glad that I did it. Um, but I was basically at the venue like two or three days a week, um, working in the premium seating department, like putting together like experiences for people who had like VIP ticketing and stuff like that. Um, it was really cool because like I learned a lot about like marketing from that. Um, I, I learned that I did not want to have anything to do with the live music industry. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like some people love going to shows and stuff. I, I'm like so much a recorded music person. Right. Um, like I'm not I, I like going to concerts every once in a while if it's an artist I really like. Some people just love going to concerts. I'm like, eh, if I like the person, I love going to concerts, but I don't love going to concerts for the sake of going to concerts. Uh, so right. that was a summer I did that. It was it was really cool. At the end, I was like, I never want to do this again. Um, <laughs> and so and, and Live Nation was a really great company. So it, it's not to say that it wasn't uh, like a fun experience. It was just yeah, and, not and, for and, me. And great to have on your resume. I mean, absolutely. And and it was cool because I, I was really happy that right off the bat, I was working at a large music industry company um, right. that, you know, and so I did that. And kind of when I was in the process working at Live Nation, I told myself, okay, I'm in, I, I, I wanted to intern as soon as I could. So I, I interned at Live Nation right after my freshman year, which was the first summer that I was able to get college credit for interning. Um, I, I think you only need like five credits of internship. I, only, I did like a bunch of different internships and I did them all for like one credit because I just wanted yes. to have a lot of internships. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, I went to Chesky Records which is an independent jazz and classical label in New York. And I won't yeah. get too much into it because I also ended up working there. But 
I interned there for uh, the fall of my sophomore year. Um, and I was doing a lot of stuff like sending like CDs out. Like the thing about Chesky is one, given the time um, that I worked there and the shifting landscape of the business is that streaming was a thing. Um, right. Spotify was a thing, but for jazz and classical, it wasn't vital yet. It was still a time when physical was very big. And so a lot of what I was doing there was like helping manage physical and sending out CDs and getting press and, and doing all of that. Right. Um, because that was still a big part of the business and, and that'll come up later. Um, because, you know, while I had friends working at labels and they were focusing on streaming and stuff like that, we, and we did it, that wasn't a big focus for us. That wasn't where the money was for us yet. Um, so I did that and that was a really great experience just working at like an indie label um i like doing that i like being on the recording side like i said so it was really cool the first day i got there like they said hey spend just like six hours listening to some of our catalog and i was like this is great i'm just sitting here listening to music this is such a fun internship um and like being a part of that um so i did that then i wanted to shift gears a little bit um we had somebody from paradigm come talk to us at a collegium um, Paradigm Talent Agency, which does not exist any well, it exists now, but not as a music touring agency. It's they sold their music division to Wasserman, um, so I'm sure Wasserman's you know sending stuff out to people about internships and stuff. But that was Paradigm at the time, um, and so I went to Paradigm. I guess the summer between my sophomore and junior year, so I took a semester off from interning, went to Paradigm, and absolutely loved it. Um, I was, you know, interfacing with venues on a day-to-day -day basis. I was, I was basically assigned to a couple agent teams um, and just doing things like mm -hmm. getting ticket counts and like working with the team on helping like source offers from different venues for their artists. And I said, I didn't like the live music mm. industry. And what I realized is that I did not like the live music industry. I just didn't like being at concerts and being at venues. So <laughs> right. this was but the, being- but the nuts and bolts behind the live, um, music industry you were definitely in interested yeah and I, and I liked being at I liked being at a place where I was sourcing offers and involved in the contractual stuff involved in you know the meetings behind we're going to route a tour this particular way and the strategy behind that I thought that was really cool it was very strategic it was very much my type of thing so I did that and then um, I did that one summer and at the time I was there a lot of the people that I was working with um, where I was, I was the only person who was going into their junior year, and a lot of people were going into their senior year. So pretty much all the other interns were, there were about 10 of us. Um, and so the other interns were all basically like locking down that they're going to work there after they graduate. So I was like, okay, I think I'm going to want to work here one more time, one more semester, if they'll have me, and then I'm going to work here. Um, so I finished up that summer. I went back to school for the fall semester, went back to school for the spring semester, and then the following summer, I did an intern. Um, fall oh, of my senior year, I go back to Paradigm and I intern there for that last semester because I said, I want to intern here right before I graduate so that I can set up working here. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, Smart. So, and, and Paradigm was like, I got really lucky because that was a, that's a paid internship and like you're there a lot. Like they ask their interns to be there a, a very large, I think it was like close to like 25 hours a week. So oh, wow. okay. it was like, and, and it 
it paid really well. So I was like kind of working um, during the fall. So it was like really busy, but it was, it was great. And I, I had actually been there uh, the person. So the interns report directly to the assistants at agencies um, and the assistant that I was working with was an intern with me the year before. So, oh, wow. so who I was friends with. So it was actually really cool. Cause I got a lot more responsibilities out of that just cause it was, we were kind of on right. equal footing, even though I was an intern. Um, and so that was really great. I got to like cover for assistants and stuff and coordinators, um, like a lot. One of the assistants that I was working for, uh, cause I was on a couple of desks and, uh, one of the assistants I was working for was out basically like they left. So for two months I was covering for an assistant, um, which was really cool. Um, and so I loved it. And then I said, you know what, I'm, I've got my final semester of school. Um, let me just do something really fun that I just am interested in doing that has no bearing on my career or anything. Um, so my last internship was at, uh, a nonprofit theater for, for like, you know, and by theater for, for everybody listening, I mean like doing plays and stuff like an off-Broadway theater and Broadway okay. theater called Manhattan Theater Club, which is one of the big nonprofit theaters in New York. Wow. Um, and I was doing something similar. So I was doing marketing. I was I was the marketing analytics intern. So there were two in marketing interns. One was very focused on creative and like social media content and stuff. The other one is focused on analytics. And so I right. was the analytics person. So I was basically analyzing ticketing that was coming in, um, ticket sales, advertising, all of that stuff. And basically figuring out how we could optimize our strategies based off of the analytics that were coming in. Uh, it was just me and the and the uh, man the and marketing analytics manager. So it was really cool. I was working directly with. Uh, we had about like we at any time have three or four shows happening at once. So it's a big operation there. So I was working with a lot of different uh, shows that were up, and basically helping to source that data and figure out ways to optimize the marketing strategy as a result, which. I don't do now with ticketing specifically, but that's a big part of my role now. Um, so it was really cool to be a part of that. Then, you know, and I won't spend as much as probably people who have done this that are a year below me have done. Then COVID happens uh, in 2020, but I but it happened like I only had one class at the time or like two <laughs> classes. It wasn't that big a deal as far as like my education goes. Like, mm -hmm. I was doing it one class remote, but it was like an hour a week. So it wasn't a big thing. Um, in fact, the internship wasn't really an internship. It was kind of like a postgraduate, like career training program. So oh, wow. they, I actually had to be there. Like I was supposed to be there 40 hours a week. They let me be there for 38 hours a week so I could do my <laughs> one class. Right. Um, so, so I was kind of working anyway. So I was like, okay, like it's all good. But so I was working there remotely. Um, and that was another one at the time I want to go back to paradigm, uh, when I graduated and I couldn't cause touring was completely shut down. So paradigm right. had laid <laughs> off and it, it ultimately ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me, like seriously. But, and I know that's a crazy thing to say, but COVID really changed my life for a lot of really great ways. Um, right. uh, in the sense that I got to work at the theater for an extra uh, three months, they because they were a member of the pay, I think it was whatever it is, the employee protection program or whatever the whatever the program is, they were a nonprofit that basically benefited from the COVID relief program, so that they got grants to keep their staff. But part of that was that they had to keep their paid interns on 
for an extra three months until the end of the program. So they basically told us like, hey, you can't leave. Like you're supposed to be done in May, but you have to stay till the end of of July. (laughs) So I stayed till the end of July. So so that was great. Um, Paradigm didn't work out because they were closed and they would end up being closed for another year. Um, Didn't work out. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that, I guess, probably gets me to the next thing you want to talk about, which is how did I get from <laughs> how did I get from my internships or from school to where I am now? Well, yeah, well, well, before we yeah. so before we get that, because I know we're definitely going to get to that. Yeah, we got to get to the juicy stuff. This is juicy in and of itself. I want to ask these internships that you got. Yeah, were they all via um, the NYU? email list or the or the office or were these things you sought out and found yourself live nation i found myself um chesky was through the email list and in fact i've gotten interns when i was at chesky i got interns from myu through the email list so right uh paradigm so i think paradigm initially was through MYU in the sense that they came and they they like interviewed on campus interns uh to work there but that was during my freshman year so I heard about it through MYU but I didn't end up applying through MYU I ended up applying through them just because of um the way they did it the following year um and then the second time I didn't I didn't end up applying but don't tell anybody that I just I just emailed them <laughs> come back and they were like yeah um so uh <laughs> they're like sure when can you start yeah, yeah yeah um and then manhattan theater club i i just i found on my own so it was kind of a mix wow wow i really i really love how you set you know the program in and of itself sets people up to be if anything entrepreneurial where you really think about your path i spend a lot of time thinking about your path and then matching those experiences um, from an internship perspective on where, what you want to gain, what you want to do. And, you know, it allows you to see, okay, maybe I'm not getting a hundred percent of everything I want at this internship, but I'm getting some key things. And then let me go get that from this other internship. So I really like how intentional you were to go out and gain these interesting experiences that would really shape your resume to get you going in the right direction to start your career. So good for you on that. Yeah. No, it was, it was really cool. I mean, the, the interesting thing was, is in retrospect, uh, the resume shaping was what I was trying to do and it ended up not being what I needed to do, but we'll get to that. Or it didn't, <laughs> end, up, it didn't end up being as necessary, but, but for, for people listening who might be in the program, it is absolutely necessary and you should be thinking about that. Uh, you should but, be. And, and I'll speak from my own experience because it's great to get, it's great to get a ton of good experience at internships but also these brand names that you selected that you went after they matter because they matter to recruiters and hiring managers yeah um even if people think hey it's about the experience yes it is you got to know what you're doing as you grow and if you're skillful and actually know what you're talking about that's going to help you yeah. but it definitely gets you in the door when you could say i worked at live nation absolutely it, it, definitely, <laughs> it definitely helped helped. i will say this it definitely helped me at paradigm get the internship at paradigm which right. would have led to a job um because i i was talking to them about working there before COVID happened so i it would have led to a job um it and i actually at another point in time talked to them about coming back um even after that so 
so it definitely would have led to a job. And I think that um, the thing that they were really excited about when I had those two internships were that I had a diverse background of things where I had that live music side on the other side, on the promoter side or on the venue side. And I also had the experience working with artists in like a representation side. Um, so you can definitely take an internship, get the skills that you need out of it and build, you know, to the internship you really want. Cause at some of these bigger companies, like, like, I don't like major labels, for example, like I applied at major label internships, like a few times I didn't get them. Um, and I think it was just mainly because by the time I applied to them, like when I applied to them, it was like my sophomore year and I just wasn't ready yet. Um, I didn't end up applying later on. So, you know, you can definitely like, just because you don't get one internship right away, doesn't mean you can't build to it. It's just like building to a, to a career, to the job that you want. The internships can help build you there, but you can also use other internships to build into an internship you want. Absolutely. So, okay. So now you've got the experience, you've got, you know, the education, you graduate from the program. Let's jump into, um, let's, let's jump into the full-time job opportunities. What was your first full-time job? Walk me through that and then walk me through how we get to, how we get to Merlin. Yeah. So I got, so my job, my internship at Manhattan Theater Club ended in July. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing for about a week, which, which in retrospect, that was like such a terrible week. And I was like, so stressed out about it. Um, and that sounds so stupid right now, I, I recognize. Um, but I actually like, at the exact same time that I wrapped up, I actually had reached out to, who, to the label manager at Chesky Records, who I hadn't talked to in like, I don't know, like three years, probably like, like a while. Um, and he reached out because they had an assistant there who was leaving um, and they needed a new assistant to work remotely um, and help them, you know, even during COVID and everything, um, get stuff together. So um, I did that and I, I hopped on there immediately um, and I did that for a while. Um, and that was basically just doing things like uh, mechanical license clearances with like HFA and like press emails, uh, researching new artists, like managing like physical inventory and stuff like that. Like it was a lot of the stuff that I was doing when I was an intern. Um, mm, okay. And it, because they, they didn't have, they couldn't have interns during COVID, I think partially. And they needed to, they basically combined the two, the assistant role and the intern role. Um, so I did that. I did that truthfully for a very short period of time because I got, and this is just one of the like lucky things that happened is that the label manager at Chesky left very short, very shortly after I returned there. Um, and Interesting. I was starting to get really involved with a lot of other aspects of the business. Um, and I was also getting close to the owners at the time too and doing stuff with them. And they liked me. And so basically they decided that instead of, and things were relatively slow because of COVID. And so they decided instead of going through the process of hiring a new label manager, they would just let me do it. Um, and so basically I went from being within like eight months of graduating, I went from being an assistant at an indie label to a manager 
basically, and I was like the only real, like maybe one or two employees there. It was a part of a consortium of companies. So I was the only person working at the label proper. There were other people who I worked with in different facets of the overall business in, in this ex- mm-hmm. in the sense that like we had a licensing team for that was technically a different company, but uh, we worked with for our, our catalog and we had a different company that we worked with um, for like, we, we owned like a download company. And, and so uh, there were a lot of people working there, but um, I was the only one working for the label proper. So I went from being on oh, a team yeah. of two working for the label to work, being on a team of one running the label and basically doing it myself. Wow. Um, and so that was really great. And I, I did that for a few years. Um, well, well, so wait a minute, let me, let's stop. Are you, um, and you may not know, are you familiar with um, Jeff Lanier? Sure. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff is a guy I've known for a while. Yeah. Um, good guy. I know he was over at Chester. Yeah. Shout I, worked, out to Jeff. I worked with Jeff uh, for, for a while there. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Jeff. Jeff yeah. is a good guy. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff is great. I mean, Jeff is, is the one who reached out to me and, and got me back there. So uh, there you go. It was great. Yeah. And, and he just, and he left and he wanted to um, get it, you know, he, he actually got out of music. Um, and yes, so, yes. Working over at Golden Crust now. Yeah. So I was just kind of, I taking over for him. Um, and that was a lot. Like, I mean, right from the yeah. start. Jeff I, leaves um, big shoes to fill. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. He was there for a while. I mean, I, I interned under him. Yeah. Um, so right from the start, like I was, I was running like a Grammy campaign for, for an artist, uh, Priya Darshini, oh, wow. who is a friend. And uh, she, she was up for um, like a new age album, I think was what it was. And I was running the the campaign for that right, right away and trying wow. to basically get her uh, Grammy now, uh, a Grammy yeah. win. She was already nominated. Uh, real, real, real quick, real quick. I want to, I want to, I want to back up a little, Matt. It's so interesting because all of these experiences you've done, and then you're at Chesky working as an assistant, and then your opportunity comes, and now it's like you got to step in and you got to step up. And so it's just interesting how how that happens because now is your time to put a lot of that a lot of that experience that you've gained from the program and these internships to good use. Did you find that while it was big shoes to fill that you had that, that good foundation started kicking in for you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the reasons they kept me on was because I knew how to do, at least on some level, a lot of things I knew how to do, but a lot of things that I didn't fully know how to do, at least I understand how they work. Um, and a lot of that was, because of what I did at NYU and because of the, the classes that I took and, and the training that I got. I mean, like, for example, I, I done a little bit with, through assisting there with like mechanical rights clearances and stuff like that, but I didn't do a lot with sync clearances. Um, I didn't do a lot with sound exchange before that. And I didn't do a lot with publishing. We also had a publishing entity and that was kind of a key part of our business too. So I didn't really work a lot with publishing before that in any like official capacity um but i very quickly learned and and the reason at least i understood how publishing worked was because of myu so um i was doing a lot of stuff there i was i was i mean i became a day-to-day for a lot of artists i mean the catalog like there's a lot of back catalog so a lot of times artists would reach out and need things like in support of that catalog um or in support of those releases 
um, or be, you know, even just things like asking for royalty statements or being explained on like how their royalty flow works at different services or stuff like that. Um, and then also just like active, like looking for new artists and managing projects and like the distribution, like we had both physical and digital distribution to manage, which every label does, but physical still being a big part. And like I said before, earlier, like I, when I took over at Chesky was a time in which jazz and classical were starting to really feel the effects of streaming. Like physical was not physical was really starting to taper off for us when I was there and streaming became this thing that we needed to rely on. And so I was really trying to help um, facilitate relationships with digital services, work with our um, distribution companies, our digital distributors and try to facilitate those relationships and like make sure that we were doing our due diligence because it used to be that you needed to, you know, sell a record, especially vinyl, like maybe $30. And now right. it was our entire strategy changed to being about, um, you know, trying to get one song on Spotify on a playlist and it right. never be taken away and it can get millions of streams a year because it's on, you know, a, and, and jazz playlisting is very lucrative on Spotify um, because places like coffee shops, which they're not supposed to be doing, but places like coffee shops or other businesses uh, will stream it on Spotify on the playlist. And, you know, that happens all the time. So it can be very lucrative. Um, so I did that. Um, and then about a year into my time at Chesky, the owner, David Chesky, um, started another label and he brought me along to do that with him, a sister label, um, but a separate entity called the audiophile society which was kind of in response to what was going on with streaming like it was really hard especially for for like high resolution music which is what we did um right. it was really tough to make money in streaming um it's very different now because you know even a few years later like you have apple pushing spatial audio spotify has high res like title has become an even bigger player in the space so there's more yes. opportunity than there was but we were really trying to figure out like these artists that we're working with are in jazz classical singer songwriter folk world music like they're not in high high growth streaming markets and so how can we generate revenue for them and so i basically helped him create this new label called the audiophile society which was basically addressing a lot of those problems and inequities in the streaming market for those mm. genres. Um, it was like a unique market segment um, because we were basically combining like new recording technology. And basically it was like, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but, but the whole point was that we would have a different type of high resolution recording and we would sell it to people via digital download um as opposed to streaming so we were incentivizing digital downloads and part of that was on the technology side and marketing the technology there to people the other part of it was marketing it for the benefit of artists so you know we had a very transparent model that um we would window releases so a release would come out a month before um on our website for digital download um you'd get like super high res files you'd get like the works like everything that you could possibly ask for if that's what you're into um delivered directly to you and then a month later it would come out on streaming so there was a windowed approach like almost mm -hmm. like with you know with with uh like tv streaming or, or movie streaming or netflix right. or whatever it's you know will if the movie comes out on you know 
in theaters, it will get licensed to a streaming service later. Um, and then maybe eventually we'll hit other streaming services, or maybe it will be exclusive on one service for a little bit and then go live somewhere else. So, right. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we attempted to do that. And, um, I did that for about a year. Um, it was a lot of my job was building the infrastructure for like, I learned a lot about building an infrastructure of an independent company. Like how do you build the infrastructure of an independent label from scratch? Cause even with Chesky, mm -hmm. I didn't get that. Like a lot of the infrastructure was there. Um, so how do you build like that indie label infrastructure from scratch? Like what's the market positioning for like a digital download slash streaming business. And like, who also has a technology component. Um, and just trying to market like on the fact that we didn't pay artists advances. Like we, we said, like we set out to create this model in which artists would be paid both for streaming and digital downloads, um, immediately. So they would get their royalty amount immediately, whatever their payout was, they would, they would immediately start earning. It wasn't like a recruitment schedule where an artist might not make a royalty back, especially in those genres for like 20 years. Um, we want to make sure they're benefiting right away and, and had a transparent look at this, you know, the streaming numbers that were coming in correlated to, you know, if you plotted them on two charts, even though the, they'd obviously get a percentage of that streaming revenue. Um, it, at least the graphs would match, <laughs> you know, like it was very like correlated, like, great. I got a million streams this month. I'm going to have a higher payout this month than I did last month. If I only had 800,000. Right. So, so that was the goal. And then, you know, I was doing, even with Audiophile Society, I was a lot more involved with working with the artists, um, like everything from the sessions to like distributing the record and everything that would happen after and marketing it. Um, I was even more involved than it was in Chesky. So it was really cool to build that out. And ultimately, um, it was that that kind of led me to Merlin. Um, I was looking for a change. and it, mm. Yeah, so I, I was looking for a change then. I like being on the label side. Um, but I wanted to do some, I wanted to be a part of a bigger company. Basically, um, I was kind of getting tired of being on a very small team and doing a lot of different hats and I wanted to focus yeah. on one area. Yeah. So small team, you know, you get the opportunity to work with David Chesky, who has a successful label Chelsea records wants to, wants to address some of these issues. You build that from the ground up. And then as you look for the new opportunity, Merlin comes along. So first, for the people that don't know, explain what Merlin is, what Merlin does, and then as you tell us about your role and what you do there, tell us how you got there and how that opportunity opened up. Yeah. So like I said, I was looking for a change and then Merlin came along and Merlin was a company that I'd obviously heard about. I didn't know about, well, I heard about Merlin in three phases, two of which I've already talked about, which is that I learned twice in school about Merlin very minimally. And I knew about Merlin because Chesky and the Audiophile Society digitally distributed through um, distributors um, of which were members of Merlin. So what is Merlin is, is what basically my job boils down to. Um, Merlin is the independent... Uh, licensing agency agency being a term that uh we don't really use but we are effectively a digital licensing agency for the world's leading independent record labels distributors and recording rights holders and what that boils down to is that it's impossible for 
every single digital service to license every single independent company. Um, Spotify doesn't have, for example, the legal bandwidth or the business affairs team to go to every single recording rights holder not affiliated with a major label or a major distributor around the world and license their rights. They just couldn't. It's not possible. Um, At the same time, not every independent company can go to a Spotify and license rights to Spotify. It's just not possible. A lot of them wouldn't get the time of day. And the ones that will get the time of day, sometimes, you know, going all the way back to the early days of streaming, weren't getting the same rates that majors were getting. And so that was a real problem. Um, And so basically what Merlin is, is a company that licenses on behalf of independent record labels and distributors and and other folks who have recording rights, whether that's an artist management company or, um, you know, like an aggregator or companies that right um, on behalf of them to digital services. So, so for example, Merlin will go to a Spotify and they'll negotiate a rate, um, you know, for how much, you know, each recording pays out because a lot of people don't think about this. A lot of people think of the Spotify rate as like, it's a, it's a rate for everybody and it's set by this higher power. It's not. It's, it's a negotiated rate that every single company that has recording rights negotiates with Spotify. <laughs> so right. we go to Spotify or, and we have you know, over 40 digital services that we work with and we negotiate rates on behalf of independents. And then the independents will benefit from that rate if they're a Merlin member. So they join Merlin and then Merlin is basically handling their digital licensing for them. They opt into the deals that they want to be a part of. Um, and then they get that right and they all get the same rate. And so basically together, they're getting a better rate. They're getting, you know, fair treatment by digital services. And in that they're getting, you know, unique marketing opportunities. Um, they're getting, right. you know, Merlin is this a one-stop shop for them so that, you know, we work with the digital service and then the digital service will pay Merlin and Merlin will then go out and pay all of their members. Um, and so sometimes it's labels, a lot of times it's labels, um, it's distributors, you know, some distributors that we have that, uh, our Merlin members are like a lot of the big DIY ones. So like you have DistroKid, you have CD baby, um, you have distributors like, uh, Monarch or Contour or, um, downtown arson label services or, um, supply chain delivery like Fuga or, um, Revelator, Audio Salad, companies like that. Um, so we really help them handle digital licensing so that they can focus on you know other parts of their business and and also make sure that they get the best rates possible. Um, so that's Merlin in a nutshell. We we make up about fifteen percent of the global recorded music market. So all of our members represent about fifteen percent of recording rights around the world. Um, and so what I do at Merlin is Mm. I basically, like I said, my job is to make sure that people know what Merlin does um, (laughs) and and to make- Helping you to this podcast, helping you do your job. Helping me do my (laughs) job, yeah. Um, And so basically my job is to set out and see like, a lot of people don't know what Merlin does. How do we fix that? Um, And, you know, that goes from everything to like how we brand Merlin, how we message Merlin, um, press opportunities like social media, the, our social media strategy, our advertising strategy, 
um, the different types of events we do, looking at analytics and seeing like where people are talking about Merlin, um, the ways in which people are talking about Merlin. Um, and then also just, you know, ways that we can attract new members and partners. That's a big thing that we try to do is make sure that, you know, once a company is ready for Merlin, we want to make sure that they, they're able to, to benefit from it. Um, and so I, I help support on a lot of that. Um, and I'm, I'm a part of a team called Strategy and Growth at Merlin, um, which is bigger than marketing. Yeah. We, we do a lot of the strategic initiatives around Merlin, um, different types of things. Like we have a um, uh, women in music um, mentorship program called Merlin Engage. Um, that's yeah. really exciting that we, we rolled out last year and are continuing to do this year. And it's basically for, uh, you know, to empower the next generation of female leaders amongst Merlin's membership. Um, and that's like a strategic initiative that we work on. And so I get to be a part of things like right. that as well. Um, so it's a really great, you know, it's a really great place to work. It's we're all about supporting independence. We want to make sure that independents have the tools that they need to stay independent. Um, there's a lot of consolidation in the music industry, um, but hopefully through the efforts that we have, you know, if a company wants to be independent and not a part of a, a major company like like a Sony or Universal or, or Warner, um, that they can do that. And so that's uh, wow. that's what we do. Wow, just great stuff there. So if I'm an indie, I have a label, independent. And I want and I want to come to Merlin. How does Merlin go about assessing how they want to work with different partners? Yeah, so I mean, there's not a one size fits all answer to that. Um, the way that we we go about that is we direct people, and like I said, like I'm I'm very much involved in the getting people to apply to Merlin and learn about Merlin. I'm not right. much in the who becomes a member uh, process there. But basically how it works is, you know, we sometimes we approach companies and, and ask them uh, if they want to, you know, we say, hey, you're a really good fit for this. And, and we think that you could benefit from Merlin membership. Other times, you know, we put materials out into the world and, um, you know, people will come in and they'll fill out our member application. So we have this member application and that's that's the first step that any independent company takes in becoming a Merlin member. It kind of is like breaks down things like um, how much you're earning um what platforms you're on in terms of like digital services uh what's your business model what types of artists are you working with um and then from there our, our member team reviews those applications and kind of decides if they are a good fit um and a lot of times you know companies just aren't ready for merlin membership yet um and so you know in those cases we we a lot of times refer people to like a merlin distributor like i i mentioned this earlier but you know some record labels, you know, you need to have a certain ability to operationalize your business, you know, to handle when, when you become a member of Merlin, you work directly with digital partners. That's a really big distinction. Like we're not a distributor. So if you become a Merlin member, you're working directly with like Spotify and YouTube um, in terms of managing that relationship. And sometimes like, for example, at Chesky, I was a team of one, so that wasn't possible. Like I didn't right. have the bandwidth to do all of those deals directly and nego not negotiate, but even things like marketing, like playlisting and stuff like that. Like I didn't have the bandwidth to do that. So a lot of times we'll refer um, companies to a Merlin distributor. And so they get the benefits of the Merlin deal, but um, they don't have to work directly with Merlin. So like, for example, Chesky distributor right. Monarch, who's a Merlin member. And so we were getting that rate 
we were getting the benefits of Merlin membership. We just weren't directly a Merlin member. Our rights, our, our catalog, for example, would get delivered to Monarch who would deliver it. Um, and through their delivery, they would be getting paid out the Merlin rate. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So there's mm. a lot of different ways to, even if you're not a Merlin member, we only have 500 members um, who represent 30,000 record labels. So just because you're not directly a Merlin member as a label doesn't mean that you're not benefiting from Merlin. In fact, one of the things that I, I always love to say to people is that you might be a Merlin member and not know that you are. I mean, to the people listening, right. if you're, you know, if you're releasing music through uh, a DIY platform, a lot of them go through Merlin for at least one of their digital deals. Um, and so you are, you know, benefiting from that Merlin relationship. And my goal is to make sure even like independent artists know the benefit that Merlin can provide to them and how that trickles down to them. So here's a little bit more of a technical question when it comes to Merlin. Sure. How, do you, does Merlin work? Um, how do I, how do I ask this? So you are obviously on the marketing side. Yeah. Do you have a, a sales team that you're also working with that that's going out and kind of doing that more outbound outreach or, or um, responding to inbound inquiries about Merlin to go ahead and increase membership or, or does that solely lie with you as the marketer? No, no, no. So we do have, we have a membership team um, and okay. they're mm -hmm. amongst managing our current membership and, you know, those relationships, they're also responsible for uh, onboarding new members. Um, uh, okay. You know, effectively interviewing new members, getting them, you know, getting all the informa information, making sure that it's a good fit, um, really all of that. Um, my job is to support them in making sure that um, we have member, you know, we are reaching the right people, um, making, and by right people, I don't mean making sure we're reaching the right music companies, just making sure that music companies know who we are. It's not my job to decide who is right and who isn't right. Um, a lot of companies are right and wrong for Merlin for different reasons. Um, so our member right. team kind of makes those decisions. And then my job is to support them, whether that's, you know, we're really trying to make sure that, you know, for example, we would look at a, a particular market and say, hey, I think we um, have room to grow here. There's a lot of independent labels that are not, you know, represented by anyone. Um, and we want to make sure that they are being fairly represented and getting their music on the platforms that can really drive growth um, in X country. I can help support that by, you know, targeting um, our marketing initiatives to a particular territory or a particular type of company or, you know, just kind of fill in the gaps that our, our personal outreach can't hit. I mean, that's great stuff. And it really puts you almost like you said in the in, like, like we said in the intro as an advocate for independent creators and labels alike to make sure that not only are they able to maximize markets for their music but increase that share of voice that independents need to have in the music landscape to keep the business thriving yeah everybody at merlin the thing that we all share is that we all love music and we all love mm -hmm. independent music specifically we we love you know we love music that's put out by the majors too but 
we love what independents do. We love the independent spirit. Um, and we want to make sure that they have the means to secure the future that they want to have. Um, and part of that is creatively. And part of that is, you know, even just in terms of their business and run the businesses that they want to run. We help facilitate that. And we're all really passionate about it. I mean, we represent 15% of the recorded music business. So, you know, the amount of catalog we represent is large. Merlin only has like 40 employees around the world. Um, we're a very small team. We're a very right, close knit team. And um, all of us are really passionate about music. A lot of us are musicians ourselves. A lot of us have been independent musicians or worked at indie labels. So we're really passionate about that. Um, and that's really our goal. We're all really united in, in being there for the right reasons and helping, you know, even on a personal level, just helping um, these companies stay independent. Great stuff. Um, Matt, talk about Music Answers and the speaking and organizations that you've advocated with and for through Music Answers. Yeah, well, Music Answers, like I said, is something that I got looped into with Phil Galston, um, who I had as a professor my junior year of music business, but also I spent two years with as a grad student um, in the songwriting department with him specifically. Um, and with him and then David Wolford, who's another, actually David Wolford and Derek Fawcett, um, Derek, who I actually did my master's with, but is now also a faculty member at NYU. So out of the five board members, um, three are NYU professors, um, which is cool. Um, and maybe people listening will have them. Uh, and so together we, we work with Music Answers. Music Answers is a, a nonprofit, which is basically set out to support um, independent music creators, really any music creator, um, and just make sure that their rights are advocated for. So part of that is education, which gets to the speaking uh, that I've done and, and that we all do as part of the organization. Um, you know, part of that is just making sure we go out to things like I've done one, like the popular um, or what Association of Popular Music Education Conference. Um, where we just want to make sure that like educators know how to teach music rights are, you know, a college program in the Midwest who doesn't have a music business program, but has like a music performance program knows that like they should be teaching their students about music rights and know that they, you know, need to have like a publishing entity for themselves or to be registered with a PRO or stuff like that to be or in order to collect royalties or, you know, how the business frameworks works for for particularly creators so when i say creators i mean specifically uh writers producers people creating music not not necessarily performers we work with a lot of organizations that do uh work with performers and, and are about performer rights that's not necessarily what we do we're, we're really more focused on writers and composers and producers and those who are creating uh music in that way uh, like and the composition level um so we do a lot of speaking there in terms of education. And then we also do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. We're, we're one of the less public uh, music creator rights organizations, but we work with all of the other ones um, to kind of make sure that, you know, the, the laws and the way that, you know, Congress is um, enacting laws around music creator rights are, are fair and just. Um, one of the things we recently did was we wrote 
a letter um, and co-signed with a few other organizations um, to uh, Congressman Issa on the intellectual property subcommittee. Um, mm, excellent. And that was about what's going on with the um, MLC um, and the black box um, right before the year, which um, a little bit more clarity has come with the CRB ruling, but still not enough clarity. Um, basically, there's this black box. I don't know if people listening know about it, but there's this black box of royalties that basically if you're not um, if you're not signed up with the MLC um, and you're generating performance income of any kind um, that would go through the MLC, particularly mechanicals. Um, sorry, not performance income, mechanicals. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're generating mechanicals and you're not signed up with the MLC, basically what's happening is uh, they're putting it into a black box is what we call it. Um, and eventually that black box will be paid out um, and redistributed to the major rights holders. Um, so basically there's a lot of independent music creators out there who aren't registered with the MLC. They might not even be registered with a, a performing rights organization. Um, and they don't know what the MLC is. <laughs> like they didn't go to school for music business, so they don't know what the MLC is. They, they might be um, not with a publisher. So the publisher hasn't signed them up with the MLC. Um, there's a lot of things that can happen that goes to the education piece that we try to work on. But basically there's a lot of things that can happen as to why somebody wouldn't be registered mm -hmm. with the MLC. And basically uh, these royalties when not registered end up in this black box. And so we want to make sure that the black box royalties are not paid out um, until the MLC makes sure that they've, you know, done what they need to do to make sure that the, the royalties are matched properly um yes it's a little concerning just because you know there's a lot of people out there who um who should have these royalties claimed or have gone through the process and we just want to make sure that um it doesn't go back to the the, the majors uh the major publishers and um there's a lot of politics that i won't get into to that but we wrote that letter just to make sure like just to make sure congress was aware Excellent. that yeah. this was going on um and that we were a little concerned about the fact that um when we talked to the mlc they were making a lot of excuses about paying this out and they wouldn't say how much money was in the black box and they wouldn't say when they were going to pay it out um and, right. and the mlc board for for those involved or interested is primarily made up of publishers it's not made up of um it's not made up of writers um publishers sometimes support the the rights of writers when it helps them sometimes they don't um, they're not always on the same side um most of the time they are and and so we're very appreciative of that um right uh but in this one case they're not and so we just want to make sure that independent writers that aren't uh affiliated with publishers uh get this this paid out properly um and so we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes um and we're, and we're happy to say that the the as mandated by the mma um congress is reviewing and is is reviewing um or the crb whoever it is that has to uh review the mlc there's going to be a period of mlc review um over the next five years and so we're really excited to see that happen and, and hopefully get to the bottom of uh what's working in the infrastructure and what's not matt i wanted to ask you just for clarification you tell the people what crb means copyright royalty board yeah so like I said, everything that I do circles back to those classes that I was in. And 
uh, the copyright <laughs> royalty board, uh, the, the copyright royalty board basically is the entity responsible for setting rates. Um, and so basically, uh, that's where professor Strickler was working and I think still does. Yes. And so, yeah, we're, we're excited to see that MLC review take place. Um, it is the copyright office, by the way, which is not the CRB or Congress, but very related mm -hmm. to both of them. And we have good friends at the copyright oh, office yeah. too, who we, we chat with daily. So uh, the copyright office is going to review uh, the MLC uh, over the next five years. And we're, we're excited to see what comes out of that. Matt, you're doing great work. Um, and you're in a great place to do the work that you're doing. I have two more questions before we get out of here. Sure. First question, what are you curious about right now? Could be anything. Could be anything. Well, I'll stick to music because that's my life revolves around this. Um, yeah, I, I just talked about the MLC review um, with the black box that, that the Copyright Office is doing. That's really exciting to me. I'm really interested to see what happens there and, and just making sure that those royalties don't revert back to the major publishers unnecessarily. There's obviously stuff in there. Um, but the, the major publishers, of course, have their artists and their writers registered with the MLC. So it's probably all independents uh, in there. So right. checking that out, I'm curious about that. Um, really excited to see what goes out and, and curious to be seeing what goes on with streaming models um, and mm. the different ways that services are paying out. I don't personally, and this this is not me speaking on behalf of, of any organization that I work with, um, I don't think we've come across the right solution yet. Um, mm. But I'm so pleased and happy to see um, these attempts being made. Like one of these, one of the, you know, there's different, there's artist-centric, there's user-centric, like there's there's all these different models. There's, there's um, Tidal was doing stuff for a while with like putting money back into... Um, putting money back into like artist development programs. Like that's really cool. Um, I don't know what the right solution is, but it's really cool to see an effort being made and, and it, at least services addressing that there is a problem and an inequity and, and we can make it better and we can build a better industry. Um, Merlin just did SoundCloud fan powered royalties last year, um, which allocates a share of each listener's subscription to artists they listen to. Um, that's really exciting and uh, excited to see the results there so curious to see how that pans out um and you know in in that you know things going on like artificial streaming i don't know if they're talking about it at, at myu right now it's a really interesting and trust and safety and that's a really interesting field going on right now I, i'm curious to see how that evolves and like i think there's going to be for, for the students listening potentially and there's going to be a lot of jobs in that moving forward um, that's super cool. Like, I just think, I mean, artificial streaming is not cool and it's not, it's not good. It's, it's fraud, but, um, it's cool to see that there's a new sector of the business opening up, like investigating that. Right. Um, and it's cool to see services like Spotify, um, you know, kind of enacting change and, and trying to address it. Um, right. so that, that's, what's kind of gestating in my brain right now <laughs> yeah those are some big topics and it'll be interesting to see how those things kind of play out here in the very near future um okay last question okay before we get out of here if you could go back and talk to yourself on the first day that you started the program what would you say to yourself yeah we touched it on, we touched on it already i think the thing that i'd say is that 
just, you know, continue to try different sectors of the business. Just because you mm -hmm. don't like something doesn't mean it's not worth trying. Um, also, things that you hear about in class aren't necessarily the way that they are in the business. That doesn't mean that they're not teaching it right. It just means like your perception of like a particular sector of the business might not be uh, not interesting to you. Like it's different in practice than it is in theory. Um, and even if you tried things that don't particularly appeal to you, that doesn't mean that you're not going to take something away from it. You know, the, the business is becoming less and less segmented and technology particularly is changing the way that, you know, recording and publishing and live music all interact with each other. And having a more well-rounded view of the industry is really something that I think sets people from this program apart. Um, so I think it would just be that just keep experimenting with different things, you know, take a class in something you're not interested in, take a class, you know, you, you should be mm -hmm. taking classes and things that you're not interested in, not taking a class in something that you know a lot about. Like if you know a lot about copyright, don't take a copyright class. <laughs> if you don't know anything about data analytics, take a data analytics class because mm -hmm. you, you'll be better off like having experience and, and disparate areas and, and being able to bring those together. Cause I can't stress this enough. Like things are becoming less and less segmented. Like, not nice. like, you know, I mean, there's like metaverse stuff. It's like, is that live? Is that music publishing? Is that recording? Is it like, is it everything? It's probably everything. Yeah. Like, Probably so, and, and the people who are working in the business 20 years ago and live who are getting into the metaverse probably don't know as much about publishing as as you might. So um, that's that's what I'd say is that there's a lot uh, to explore and, you know, kind of figure out. And that's the fun of it. So, Matt, you are not the only person that I've interviewed to answer that question in a similar way but it's never, it never gets old to hear this type of answer to encourage people listening, but also let people see in these type of experiences, pursue things and pursue knowledge and grow your knowledge base and have a diverse set. It's going to help you in the future. Yeah. So I appreciate you saying that everyone that is Matt Rose, marketing manager at Merlin music advocate. Matt, thank you for coming on the show, man. This was great. It was great talking to you about what you do. And yeah, this was a very fruitful conversation. Oh, I'm glad. Thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah, um, everyone, like I said, that was Matt Rose. Um, it was great to have him on. And thank you for listening. Um, that's the end of our show. You can follow me at BryceB88 on Twitter. I will be having more episodes soon. But until then, as I like to say, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of People from the Program. Be sure to check us out anywhere you listen to your podcasts and stay tuned for future episodes of the show. 